Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. This was supposed to be Germany's re-entry into the world community, and it was shattered. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. And welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am mighty cold. How are you doing? <laughs> I am cold as well. So. Have you seen snow? We have seen snow here. So so we're getting ready for biathlon and I sliding know, season I and know. all that good stuff. Yeah. So that is going to be exciting. It's always fun when the season shift from summer to winter. So I'm excited to see all of our winter Team Olympic Fever members out on the courses and slopes again. Looking cold. <laughs> uh, before we get started, we have something new for the Olympic Fever fans. We now have a newsletter. This comes out every Tuesday and we'll have behind the scenes moments from our shows and interviews and more. You can subscribe at oldlimfever.com. And if you have a favorite Olympic moment you would like to share with the readers, send it to us at oldlimfever at gmail.com. If you could send us a link to the video, that would be great. And we'll include it in the newsletter. The first issue came out this week. And I, I got to say, the Olympic moment is from listener Brendan. And it is a doozy. It makes me tear up a little bit, even though it's not American. But, okay, shut up, Jill. Everything makes you tear up. Oh, well, that's true, but still. True. <laughs> <laughs> Just confirming that we're tearing up again. It's true. It doesn't yeah. take much, but this one this one is definitely... Oh, uh, man, it's an amazing, worthy. amazing moment. So get the newsletter out on Tuesdays. This week is book club week here on the show, so let's get right to today's discussion. Book club Claire is back to discuss the book Munich 1972, Tragedy, Terror, and Triumph at the Olympic Games by David Clay Large. Take a listen. Claire, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to talk about our latest book, Munich 1972, Tragedy, Terror, and Triumph at the Olympic Games by David Clay Large. Claire, take it away. Are, are you sure there was triumph in there? This book, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about what the book was about first, and then we can discuss it. This book, if you want a comprehensive study of any Olympics, how it's birthed and how it's created, this is a good book for you. Uh, it covered how the Munich organizers put their bid together. It talked about how they made the facilities. It talked about the opening ceremonies. It talked about the politics of everything. It talked about the Black September terrorist attack. It talked about the closing. It talked about the cost. Oh, and by the way, there was a little bit of sports in there. 
And very little. That's very little. I, yes, I would have to say that. But if you want a full rounded coverage of how an Olympic Games was put on in the 1970s, this was definitely the book for you. Now, I know that's probably the most positive thing we can say about the book. So I kind of want to hear both of your opinions hey, on what you thought. If you need a sleeping aid, the first half of the book is for you. I honest to Pete, this book took me about two months to get through. And now I understood why it sat on my shelf for years, you know, because sometimes books are like, hey, you got to read this now. This book I was excited to get. Then I put it on the shelf and said, let's read it. So I apologize for promoting that aspect. But like it literally, if I could get through two pages a night, that was progress. And I, I honestly thought I wasn't going to get done. Very proud to have gotten done four minutes before we taped. <laughs> There's honesty right there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, there were parts that were good, but not the first half, which was about the planning. And it could have been. It could have been a lot more interesting. I think for... I, I think if it had been 50 pages of the planning. Yeah, right? It would have but... been very interesting because he had so much information and things that are different than they are now. Right. And just they put this bit together so fast. It was yeah. just a few months. They decided, oh, let's put on a show. Let's get it, you know, let's put it on in the barn kind of thing. It was, it, that was interesting. Not just well told, so much but... of what they put in the bid had nothing to do with what actually happened. I thought mm -hmm. it was also very interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, they said That's... it's going to cost this. It costs like 10 times more. We're going to have this event here. Oh, we're putting it someplace else. So I wonder now for, say, 68, 76, the other Olympics around it for Sapporo and said, was that true? You know, were the bids so completely divorced from reality of what actually happened? It would be interesting to see if somebody has done a study like what was the bid versus what happened? Just because they are always so far away from what what's originally proposed. Which is what people are trying to avoid now, especially the IOC. They don't want these bloated bids to come their way. They want it to be streamlined. That's what they're looking for. Yet, you know, even with the bidding for the 2026 Winter Olympics, there was the bid from Sweden and that seemed to be like, okay, we are going to trim this down and you could kind of trust that. And then the Italians kind of just threw everything and they said, Hey, we have all this awesome stuff. And the IOC said sold. So even now that, that kind of stuff is still happening. Um, where's the money going to be? So right. right. this is or, just kind of a precursor. Or did, did cities learn like, Oh, well, we'll submit a low bid and the IOC will be happy and promote the fact that, oh, it's a low cost effective bid. And then it just gets bloated out of control because, hey, guess what? That's what happens when you get a games. It's going to cost you way more than you ever thought it would. Anyway, what I took away from this is, is David Clay Large is a pretty respected researcher and expert on Germany. So I took away the fact that he knew how to research very well. To a fault. It was insanely detailed. Every single nook and cranny was covered here, that's for sure. Except for the sports. Except for the sports. What I thought was so interesting was, and I had forgotten this, was how different terrorism was at that time versus how we think of it now. You know, this was oh, not, yeah. you know, this was not, and David Clay Large makes a very big point that these were political terrorists, not religious terrorists. Yeah, that the fact that they were Muslim didn't matter. You know, one of the leaders was the child of a Jew and a Christian. It was like Islam plays no part. It's being Palestinian. It's, it's an ethnic political issue. And that they weren't suicide terrorists. No, yeah, not at all. Very different. Very different and very different methodology and very different style. And the response was so different than what we would see now, both in the media and in the military or the counterterrorism response. So different. So I mean, unprepared. So unprepared. And they're sending, my favorite person in the book was Annalise Geis, who was the, the policewoman, who goes up to the apartment where the Israeli athletes are being held and talks to Issa, who's the leader of the Black September terrorists. 
and just has a chat with him to sort of convince him to change what he's doing and how bizarre that was to my 2019 mind. It was surprising in that regard. And and how yeah, you mentioned it was there were Palestinians, you know, uh, a country without a country. So against Israel for, for taking what was theirs and how they decided to take a peaceful festival and use it to promote their political agenda. And, and how the IOC and the Munich organizers dealt with it is mind boggling. Like, they didn't evacuate anybody out of the village. They just let them stay in the village. And there was even a quote in there where um, the athletes, you know, were hanging out in their dorms and playing ping pong and listening to music. And meanwhile, over in in that little corner, people are, are fighting for their lives and there's dead bodies. It's like, who thought that was a good idea? Just... I don't know how accurate it is, but there was a couple of movies made about Steve Prefontaine, who makes an appearance in this book. And so do the movies. The, uh, yeah, and so do the movies. And he and, and David Clay Large had an opinion. I actually prefer the Jared Leto version, if I can say that, <laughs> unlike David Clay But in that movie, they have a scene where Steve Prefontaine is in his dorm room watching he can see everything that's happening and i don't know if that's entirely accurate but what is accurate is that there were athletes in their dorm rooms overlooking where the israeli athletes were being held by the back september terrorists and they could just watch it and see it and going up to the roof and watching this hostage terrorist situation unfolding before your eyes and that you're hearing the gunfire and you're just are we competing today i don't know such a different time, such a different way of thinking about it, such a, I almost want to say an innocent time, like they wouldn't, in a strange way, like, oh, they're just after the Israeli athletes, they're not going to bother anybody else. Yeah. Such a whole other way. But my big question for both of you is, did you think they should have continued after the loss of the Israeli athletes? Because there was controversy about them continuing the Olympics after that. You know, I'm kind of of the opinion that the show must go on. And I, I don't like saying it that way, but it's the we will not let terrorism win factor of the whole thing. That's why I think it was good to like take the time off. What I noticed that when David Clay Large was talking about the different athletes who decided to vacate the Olympics and go home and, and say that we didn't want to do that. But then the members of the Danish handball team had to come back. Otherwise, they'd end up forfeiting. <laughs> yeah. And you couldn't have that. But they wore black armbands. And I thought that would have been appropriate to have everyone wear black armbands. Say, hey, you know, this is something we need to acknowledge this happened. We can't forget. But we should not let terrorism win this fight. I agree that they should have continued. I also think that the way they handled it was terrible. With Avery Brundage just kind of, and this is something I actually did like about David Clay Larch, his treatment of Brundage was pretty spot on, where he just calls him a senile old man <laughs> in, in the twilight of his really nasty career. But he, he points out that Brundage was spouting nonsense at this point. He even says, quote, his comments, a fervent litany of the obsessions and crochets that had served as his life's credo. The tirade showed it was high time for the old man to go because he took the opportunity, the memorial for the fallen Israeli athletes and ended up just railing on everything under the sun. Who approved of that speech? The things that they did just were done very poorly and too off the cuff for something like this. Yeah, it makes me wonder how that would be handled now. You know, I remember right after September 11th, they canceled all the baseball games and all the football mm -hmm. games, and they suspended it for, I mean, the baseball was a few days and then uh, football was a week. And how emotional that was when we went back to sports. And there was a push and pull saying, is this okay? Mm -hmm. And they barely had 24 hours and the athletes didn't even know if they were safe anymore. And let's throw them right back out onto the field. It was, I do believe they should have continued. And I'm glad that they continued because, and I've said this with the other boycotts, 
I hate when the athletes suffer mm-hmm. for other reasons, political or governments or, or in this case, terrorism. So I'm glad that they continued, but they continued in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. They continued, I think, too soon without enough consideration for protecting the athletes because they were still in danger. And clearly the black armbands, the the way Brundage handled it, you know, I'm never going to say anything nice about Avery Brundage. So I'm glad that they continued and I wish it had had more of an impact than it seems to have had because it had an impact on the rest of the world, but it didn't seem to have much of an impact on the Olympic world, at least for many, many years to come until more of the rest of the world kind of forced it to look back at Munich. And I think that's our 2019 eyes and minds coming into effect, because we know if anything like this were to happen, we would have Red Cross donations and blood drives and and all these, you know, just benefit concerts and everybody would be putting a black armband on or or putting it on their social media page and hashtags. and, And that's that's where we're coming from back then. This was probably I mean, there was some backlash to it. But otherwise, it was just, that was how it was done in the 70s. And it it kind of makes you realize how history has really changed, even over the last 10 years, I'd have to say, you know, with with how fast things are going. Have you ever seen the Jim McKay excerpt where he says they're all gone? I think I have in passing, but I did not do that in preparation for, for tonight. We have to include that, Jill, a link to that clip, because it will put the whole thing in perspective. Mm. Just that moment where he says they're all gone. People outside of the Olympic movement got it and got Mm -hmm. what was happening and got the impact of it. Somehow it did not translate into the IOC. Because they were so entrenched in the Olympic Mm. movement. We must have amateur athletes. We must not allow Mm -hmm. any sort of professionalism or sponsorships to come into play. We need to keep it as raw as possible. And in the changing world that was happening at the time, they could not do that. It just was impossible. And the men of the IOC were just too old and crotchety to realize that. Oh, it just well, makes they, me... <laughs> they are people of means that like nice things. And this yes. was a very not nice thing. And it's very hard to sweep that under the rug and have to be forced to deal with it. Which they were doing for so many other things. The doping that was starting to emerge, they were trying to sweep that under the rug. Bad judging, uh, if we get into the the little sports that that was covered in this book, that was as best as they could, dismissed quickly and quietly. They didn't realize how much of an impact these things were having. And they were going to eventually, but it just, it took a long time. So when you are doing these retrospective books on the 60s and 70s Olympics, you see all these things and you just roll your eyes. <laughs> it's still happening. Oh, look at all this awful stuff. Yeah, bad, bad boxing, judging. Bad boxing. Yeah. Who, who knew? I'm like, really? I knew they, they mentioned a little bit about the block judging where the Eastern European countries mm-hmm. and the, the Soviet satellites would all kind of go together. And then the Western European and Americans would go together. That made sense to me. But some of it was just like, yeah, the Turkish judge just sort of did something <laughs> randomly out of the nowhere. And I'm like, it's still I mean, we have boxing almost losing its spot in the Olympics because mm-hmm. they still can't find reputable ethical judges. I think we need to accept that boxing can't find decent judges. Or that boxing is just hard to judge. You're nicer I than I am, Claire. I've <laughs> never, I've never figured out boxing. Uh, you know, I've, I will admit that I, my boxing experience only goes as far as the Rocky movies and Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson with the ear thing. That's all I know. But even then it's hard for me to understand. Okay. So is this a point? Is it not? And and judges, I can sympathize with them to a point. But yeah, when it starts to become blatant that you are siding with one person over the other, uh, that's where I kind of have issues. I mean, I have issues with bad judges and bad umps and bad refs in all sports. But it's something that takes time to figure out. We also can talk a little bit about Team USA, and how this was not 
a good Olympics for Team USA, apart from Mark Spitz. Right. A lot of disappointment in track and field. Be still my heart. I know. I know. And it was a, it should have been another good outing for the games. But it was interesting because uh, Large mentioned how some of the athletes were really disappointed in that and the people in charge. And they're like, the way the USOC is run has to change. And then, lo and behold, four years later, you have the Ted Stevens Act, which created the USOC as we know it. Is that correct? I'd never heard that. Was that in the book? No. No, no you'd have okay. to know. Um, <laughs> no, no I, yeah, I, I sorry, sorry. They talked about that after this games, there was, there was some deep soul searching as to how the USOC was organized and how it was administering. Well, for good reason, all of these right. things. Right. Poor, and poor Rick DeMont, you know? He, he right. had a chance to get a gold in swimming, and just because the coaches and the medical staff didn't report his asthma medication, he Kathy lost it. Kathy O'Connor would never have allowed that. Right, no. Dr. Kathy would not have. And I have to correct no. myself. It's the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, okay. uh, 1976. So it did take a little while, but to me, this was kind of the seeds of change in the way things were run in the United States. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Because when we read Shirley Babishoff's book, she complained about how swimming was run for 76. Mm -hmm. So I think 72 and 76 were both very disappointing outings for somewhat different reasons, but definitely in the two big kind of glamorous sports that the U.S. had dominated, track and field and swimming, Mm -hmm. those two Olympics were not good. And even in swimming, it was Mark Spitz and not much else in terms of the rest of the team was not terribly successful, but he, of course, was... You know, the gold sort of shined off of everybody, but that led the way for the 78 changes. It's kind of funny how I read about Mark Spitz's stuff. And I'd say 12 years ago, reading about that stuff would have been, oh, how could he have done that? So amazing how he was able to just get right back in the pool and swim. And now that 2008 has passed and I've witnessed Michael Phelps's stuff and viewed almost every single race live I go, eh. it, it, it was, that's just me, you know, being a youngin, I guess. But yeah, it's like, oh man, this was tough. But Michael Phelps has accomplished it. So it, it, it lost its luster just a little bit. Well, I think something he misses in the book is that how big of a star Mark Spitz was after this. Yes, yeah, he. Just, I mean, it's interesting how he talks about some of the aftermath, which I thought was kind of interesting, but he didn't necessarily talk about Mark Spitz's just the, the golden boy of the Olympics. And the aspect golden boy for a long time. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, he came back and he was the big star. And you have to remember, like, getting on the Wheaties box was the thing back then. So, Sports Illustrated. Right. You make yeah. all those covers and he was just a superstar. He was everywhere and even continued because I remember, I mean, I wasn't even a swimmer Mm -hmm. and I remember Mark Spitz and Bruce Jenner and sort of these stars of seventies sports Mm -hmm. were everywhere. And I had never seen him race and I still knew who he was and what he had done. So I think if you compare it to 2008, when Michael Phelps He's still a huge star now, 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Right. It was the same thing with Mark Spitz. I mean, he was everywhere. And I think that misses it in this book. Right. Because, yeah. well, I mean, it's it's almost like Mark Spitz got sent home when once the attacks happened. And that's where Mark Spitz left David Clay Large's mind as well. Right. Yeah. It, who, when an athlete was mentioned in this book, they were pretty much mentioned for their paragraphs and then were never mentioned again. Okay, one one of my beefs with this book is that he says right up front, and thank you for being honest, David Clay Large, but he says, I'm only going to talk about the sports I want to talk about. And you could totally tell that he liked swimming and he liked track and field. And he felt forced to talk about boxing and wrestling, and he felt forced to talk about Olga Corbett, And I noticed this, especially at the very end, when he talks about the athletes who were caught for doping, the only one he mentions by name is Rick DeMont, the only one. And I also noticed how much he liked swimming and track and field because those sections of the book read so much easier to me. The first part of the book just got to be torture. 
And then once you got in like, oh, thank goodness we got through, I'm halfway through the book and we can finally get to the games. And then the boxing and wrestling controversy was also kind of torturous for me to read. But then he got into swimming and like, huh, this is reading kind of interestingly. He got into all the track and field stuff. Huh, that's kind of interesting too, although I think he didn't do as deep of a dive as he could have. But like, it was very clear what he liked to write about and what he had done a lot of research on versus... And then I also noticed... I'm going to pile all my beefs into this segment. I noticed that he mentioned he was living in Germany at the time of the preparation because he was a doctoral student and he got displaced by the housing crunch. So he had to go find some kind of, and how housing got too expensive. So he went to find something else and like, oh, this is why you are focusing so much on the beginning is because you were there. And it's, I didn't want to say like, you're bitter and you want to show like, oh, well, I'm going to take all this stuff and turn it into a book someday. But that's almost kind of like what he did. And his bitterness really showed through. I thought what was interesting was how different this book was from the book we read about Rome 1960. Yes, yes. so different. Rome 1960 was a love letter to those Olympics. It mm-hmm. was this homage to everything La Dolce Vita and even the controversies and the, the difficulties of that games were presented with this golden patina and this, you know, through Rose. Mm-hmm. And this was the exact opposite. This was, I'm going to show you all the warts, all the terrible things that terrible people did and brush over the triumphs that are in the subtitle, but they're so quickly dismissed. Mm-hmm. Right. But on the flip side of that, so much about Munich 1972 versus Rome 1960 was tragedy. I mean, we can't discount the difference in, I mean, Rome 1960 was such a celebration. It was the reentry of Italy into the world community. Mm -hmm. This was supposed to be Germany's reentry into the world community, and it was shattered. And I gotta say, it's nice... I do appreciate the fact that Large does expose all of these warts, especially when you're talking about Avery Brundage and kind of some of the ineptitude around the organizing committee and how they handle things, especially with the Black September event. But it really, it just got very bitter. And I don't know if that has much to do with the fact of his German background. I think if the book had been written more of a first-person perspective, Mm. that would have been fascinating. Mm. You know, he's living there. He's seeing all these things develop. He could provide extra information that he got from his research, but actually to see him there experiencing it would have made this book totally different and much more enjoyable. And instead, he decides to go with standard route of writing a historical book, and it got long and forced and opinionated at some points, sometimes in a funny way, and sometimes I went, oh, he really went there. Okay. And I appreciated the stuff that he was presenting, but with that, I did kind of sense that snide uppity sound as he mm-hmm. as I was reading this it's like I know all about this and I'm going to tell you everything that was wrong this is all wrong so going on that first person question I know if I I know the answer that Jill's going to give me so I'm not going to ask her the question of the sporting events which do you wish you had seen in person out of all of these things in 72 in 72 I would have been very curious to see the Wayne Collett and Vince Matthews controversy, seeing them on the podium after the 400 and how, like, was it a political statement for them or were they just irritated by everything that had been going on the past couple of days? I I would have liked to, I mean, yes, everybody would say Mark Spitz, of course, but I would like to have seen how that response actually came along instead of kind of what they've they've said. Oh, of course it was a political statement, you know, in years in the future. I would have liked to have seen that. What would you have seen, Jill? You know, besides Mark Spitz, I would <laughs> have a... liked to have, I would have liked to have seen the final basketball match. <gasps> yes. Oh my I goodness. That, I mean, and unfortunately, like he really does not go into that as much as I thought he, he would. And what he really doesn't go into was the field hockey match. I, I I would also like to see that because that just sounded like it was crazy. And we just didn't get the same attention to detail that we got for 
Philly Dalma and all the the work that he put in versus this legacy of winning at the Olympics and just what happened? You find out in like two paragraphs. on the turf match. I mm-hmm. know. I've never Come on, heard Harry. that match before. Harry, go write another book. Skip your Mexico 1960. Get on 72. Blood on the turf. <laughs> There were some fascinating things. Every single Olympics comes up with so many storylines. It is really hard to narrow it down mm-hmm. uh, to, to know what to cover and what you can leave out. So maybe there was more to this and, and either he or his editors maybe said, eh, less sports. <laughs> Which... <laughs> I liked it better than everyone's like, okay, you're writing a book about the Olympics. The Olympics is built on sports. We're just going to cover the big glass dome or, or ceiling thing that's covering the track stadium for 80 pages and not cover the, the track and field. Okay. I did like the discussion of the ceiling, though, because this, the glass roof was one of those white elephants that, you know, like the bird's nest in Beijing or, or, or like some of these other stadiums where they come up with this amazing idea on paper and it looks really cool when you build the model. But then there are engineers who come in and like, uh, you cannot build that for less than 10,000 mock. It's like, <laughs> you know, you cannot even build the model. What are you doing? I, I love that about those questions of, especially at this time with the Olympics, where it was all about new stadiums, building the spectacle. Mm-hmm. Every federation wanted a new stadium. Yes. And now the Olympics keeps talking about legacy and boondoggles and don't overspend, but we still want the spectacle of the giant glass roof. And right. how do you balance those two things? And well, just the engineering marvel of that glass roof. It's a, is it still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It you can go there. I, I want to no, go they, Actually, they still use it. I think Munich has done a good job in terms of legacy with the stuff at Olympia Park. So the stadium still gets used. Um, Bayern München soccer team, that was their home stadium for a long time. And then they said, no, we need a new stadium. They've moved out of the area. But the stadium still has like rock concerts and and other events there's a tower there that you can go up there's a restaurant in the tower i believe and uh like a little viewing deck outside that you can go outside and see outside and it is lovely to walk around it's really pretty it's kind of kind of hilly and the swimming hall is still open and you can go swim and it's a oh it's such a great pool to swim in it really is a beautiful pool to swim in one when i swam there it was like the best pool i had been in so there is still that legacy and they did like extend the train to go there and that's another aspect of the legacy that i think we don't always think but people kind of take for granted that oh this wasn't here before and maybe they would have had to develop it at some point because the population would grow and they needed to get housing and things like that but i think it's a nice legacy to have and it's a really beautiful park a lasting monument to their own ego (laughs) (laughs) that is a quote that's not my that's not taken from me that's taken from the book i know and when when that was mentioned i said that is so true because anybody or any stadium or park that has been built for any olympics Mm -hmm. is basically meant to say i designed this it is mine, or this is the city's. And instead of thinking practically, I think that is right. really something that's still in effect today. And we have to talk about the importance of Munich 72 in the history of the podcast, because our very first episode was about mascots, and the mascot, Valdi, just the mascot in general, was pretty much born in 72. I mean, there was Schneemann before then, but Valdi was really the one that launched the cute stuffed animal like mascot was he mentioned in the book yeah very kind of disparagingly you know they made fun of the dachshund and i'm not okay with that (laughs) (laughs) oh okay i I wanted to get back to sports really david clay large never does (laughs) we know what the olympics are about he apparently does not even though this is actually his second olympic book he he wrote a book all about the 36 olympics as well which doesn't surprise me and he i'm curious 
although not curious enough to actually read it, but curious to see how much of that book actually talks about sports and how much of it deals with politics at the time. But I I wanted to go back to that USA-USSR basketball game. There was a documentary done, I don't know how many years ago, interviewed all of the USA players. Have you guys seen that documentary? No, I have not. I can't remember what it's called. It was fabulous. My dad made me watch it because he was, and I'll shout out, shout out to my dad. He's probably listening. He knows exactly what I'm talking about because he forced me to sit down and watch that documentary. He's like, you, you will not believe what happened. And sure enough, I could not believe what happened because it was hard to read in the book itself because it is print. But to watch it and watch the coverage that they had in the documentary just made it all the more unbelievable of what actually happened. Oh, three seconds. Yeah, that's the yeah, one. Three seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I adore that documentary just because it talks to all of the athletes, I want to say 25, 30 years after the fact, and they're still so crushed about how that ended. Doug Collins, like I'd known Doug Collins from when he was coaching in the NBA, but to see him as a, an Olympic athlete and how this really affected him, I kind of like, oh, I don't mind Doug Collins anymore. He, I think he used to coach for the Bulls, and, and I did not like him when he was coaching for the Bulls because I'm a Pistons fan. But I kind of gained a new respect for him and what he had to go through with, with that. Yeah, that documentary was amazing. The paragraph on Olga Corbett broke my heart. Oh, my gosh. And that's like it ends like I would always read a section. And when it it hit a break, that was my reading for the day I was done. And that's how that section ended. Like, I can't go to bed like this. It's so sad how she was such the golden girl of the games. And yet you find out all of these terrible things her coach did to her. Oh, oh. Okay, so, and we should probably, because I'm sure some people skipped that section because that kind of got a little lost. So at Munich 72, she was the most beautiful gymnast. She had trouble in the all-around, then comes back and wins medals in the individual. And he's saying, oh, she had this great career. And then we find out she was a sex slave to her coach. And I was so mad about how he wrote that because I felt like he completely undercut her and her athletic accomplishments. Yes, absolutely. I I could not agree more. If you want to put that in, and it should be highlighted that this woman was abused and that Mm -hmm. so many female athletes, we see it. I mean, how many times have we talked about it in gymnastics? I mean, Mm -hmm. this has been the news for the past few years. Put that in the epilogue. Let her achievements stand on their own. This is a woman who changed. Nadia would not have existed without Olga. She changed the sport forever. And to dismiss her as the victim, as sort of her athletic achievements are less important than her status as a victim of abuse was wrong and unfair and made me very angry. Maybe even angrier than the fact that she only got a paragraph in the whole damn book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very shocked that she, uh, well, it spills onto two pages. So it's <gasps> two, two pages. pages in the I know that shocked me. But then I was thinking as you as you were talking about that, we don't hear, granted, we don't hear about the athletes very much at all, but we really don't hear about the female athletes. We got her and we got the only other female athletes we hear about are West Germany's Heidi Rosendahl, who was a long jumper, and then East Germany's Ulrika Mayfarth, who was a high jumper. And that's all we heard about in terms of the women's competition. And I know that there's still a lot of disparity at this time between men's and women's events, but really that's it. Some of the glaring omissions in this book really got to me. And I think that's my other half of the beef is half of the book is preparation and not very interesting. Another chunk of the beef is not a lot of focus on the athletes. And then... You know, I'm glad he spent a lot of time on the Black September Day, but in relation to how much time he spent on the, the preparations, it, it also seemed diminished to I me. Agree. Although I will give him props for kind of going through and explaining what the terror situation of the day was like, because I think that was very helpful. I agree. I was disappointed. But on, on the flip side... <sighs> The organizers wanted to bury it. 
So once it was over, once you hit September 7th, they moved on and they tried to kind of pretend it didn't happen. So even though he does give much too little space to talking about it and the impact, I think that was also a reflection of what happened after it ended at the games themselves, Hmm. that it was ignored and it wasn't paid attention to and they tried to bury it. And And isn't the IOC still trying to bury it because the families are still trying to get the moment of silence at the opening ceremonies. They try every single quadrennial mm-hmm. and they are rejected every true. time because now it's the kids. It's those 14 children that survived the athletes and the coaches are now pushing still right, all these right. years later. So this is called tragedy, ter- terror and triumph. And we would all agree. I'm sure that tragedy and terror are in here, but there's very little triumph what would you've done to end this on a high note or to cross it into upwards territory so you don't end the book like I did and just skim the epilogue and say, well, this is depressing. How would you have made it so that you finish the book and you go, huh, okay, there's hope for the future? Well, I think I would have looked at the records broken. And I mean, it all comes back to what athletic triumphs there were. You, so you, there are athletic triumphs with Mark Spitz, of course, Olga Corbett. Who knows what happened that changed other sports and the trajectory of improvement in the other sports? We don't really get a sense of that. I think a triumph, and he kind of talks about this in the epilogue. I think the the legacy of some of the stadiums are a triumph for Munich because it has turned into a bit of a legacy. Not all of them, as he talked about, but some of them. I think if there was more focus on that in the epilogue. But, yeah. I mean, he really didn't seem to care enough about the sports to kind of keep following that trajectory or even kind of put them into context of where they were in their ev- evolution as a sport. You know, he, he mentions Frank Shorter's victory in the marathon, and he sort of edges around saying, oh, running was becoming a craze in the United mm-hmm. States. <laughs> but I wish, going on what Jill was saying at the end, that there was more talk about how much sport changed because of things in 72. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Bill Bowerman, who was the founder of Nike and was the track and field coach. And oh, how- he was hilarious. He Anytime was a- they quoted him was just funny. And we had such equipment changes because of him in a waffle iron. Mm-hmm. And that still resonates today. You know, we wouldn't have the sneaker contracts and everything that exists. And, and the, the advancement controversy. And the sneaker controversy, but even the advancement in equipment that came from 72. So I think I would have liked to see some of the positive legacies highlighted more, especially in the sports. I mean, Mark Spitz yeah, I mean, the way that, people trained. That in the record sport. held until 2008. I mean, that's a long time for a record to stand, especially in swimming when records fall all the time. Definitely. I think personally, I can understand that this book was more focused on Germany and how the main players constructed it. So we we memorized their names. We saw them all the time. But Willie Dom, Hans Jochen Vogel, Willie Brandt, all of those guys, how they put their heart and soul into making Munich quality. And I think it, that David Clay Large was trying to spend more time on Germany's role in the Olympics instead of the actual Olympics, which, okay, I don't agree with that, but that's what his goal was. So if, if that was the case, I would have ended the triumph of the book with how this all starts an upswing in German appreciation because still at this time it was 36 years since the Berlin Olympics and not that long 25 years or so since World War II and people were still thinking negatively of of Germany at the time and now people were coming in and seeing West Germany and its vibrancy and, and what they were trying to promote without having any red or black or gold anywhere, you know, pastels. And this was Munich's way of saying Germany is changing with the times as well. And I think it, it did that to some some degree, although the, the terrorism attack took some of that luster. But I do think it helped 
the area positively. We mentioned the legacy. So I think that he could have taken that and ran with it and said this was a good thing for the area and it helped in the long run instead of saying this was ended up being bloated and it made Montreal even worse because of the security. You know, that that's where he ended up taking it. And I just think he could have ended with some hope instead of depressing, like I thought. <laughs> so this was a book. If you if you didn't read it, <laughs> you didn't miss much. But we right. read it for you and we regret it. Giving <laughs> you the gold medal this time, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> so are we ready to introduce our next book? Yes. All right. We love our long titles. We love our our subtitles. So we have a doozy for you. All right. It is called The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle by Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin. If that's the title, how long's the book? I don't know. Actually, this is a brand new book. This book is actually dropping this week. So if you haven't looked, maybe they've been talking about it since there is also a movie that is coming out based on Richard Jewell and his actions at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. So maybe you've heard the book. Pick it up. That's what we're going to be covering over the next couple of months. I'm super excited. I, I don't. This is the first Olympics that I really followed. And yet I know nothing about this and I feel kind of bad about it. So I can't wait to read this and finally understand what all happened. I'm excited about this too. And we have listeners who have opinions. Oh, I can't wait to hear them. I would love to hear as much as possible. And you know, if they're going to talk about 96, they're going to talk about my man, Izzy. You know (laughs) that they're going to talk about my mascot. I'm going to wear my little Izzy pin when we record and we are going to have so much fun with Izzy. I'm going to, oh, I need to, I need to get my costume ready for Olympic Day. Wasn't that what I was supposed to do? <laughs> dress up like Izzy. So, yeah, that's how I'm going to dress. So you're going to wish, listeners, that this was a video podcast because I'll come in my Izzy gear. And we'll talk about Richard Joe. Which... <laughs> I hope for you that they talk about, <laughs> talk about Izzy. We shall see when the book drops. I, it's going to be... It's going to be fascinating. So I hope you, that you all pick it up. And you can do so through the uh, link to Amazon on our website, olimfever.com, and help us support the show. I know I will. Thank you. Thank You're you, Claire. Well, thank you so much, Claire. Thanks, As Claire. always, it's so much fun to talk to you, and we really appreciate all the work you do for us and making this segment a lot of fun. Remember, everybody, there is triumph in your life. Don't take it like this book. There is not just depressing stuff in your life. There is happy stuff too. That's what I got. Signing off. Thank you so much, Claire. You can follow Claire on Twitter at Cauldron Light and read her weekly Olympics blog, Light the Cauldron, and we will have links to both of those in the show notes. I always love book club discussion, even though I really didn't like this book. I wore my powder blue leisure shoot today <laughs> in, in honor, honor of the volunteers absolutely <laughs> since we taped munich has been named as the host of the 2022 european championships which is another multi-sport event for europe and that happens to be the 50th anniversary of these games so that's very exciting for them they'll have a little bit more legacy usage of the olympia park well i'll be interested to see the roof in action yes exactly our next book will be the suspect and olympic bombing the fbi the media and richard jewell the man caught in the middle by kent alexander and kevin salwin and if you want to read a little bit more about that, listener Nick has a blog post about the book. His blog is olympicringsandotherthings.blogspot.com. And he talks about the bombing and the book that came out just this week. Very excited to have a book that's not only, I was going to say a little bit more contemporary, but 1996 is a long time ago now. But it's a brand new book. <laughs> Well, you know, it is more in the lifetime of more people. (laughs) Well, that is becoming less and less true the more and more people we talk to. (laughs) I know. Doesn't it make you crazy when people say, oh, the first Olympics I remember is Sydney? Oh, I know. I know. But this 
Christmas time, there's going to be a Richard Jewell movie directed by Clint Eastwood that's going to be out, at least here in the States, but I would imagine it's going to have a little bit more global push as well. So it'll be nice to read something timely and that's in the news. You can pick up your copy at the link on our website. Go to olimfever.com slash book club and order your copy through Amazon. If you order through our website, we'll get a little commission off of that and that goes to support the efforts of the show. All right, moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. This is our segment where we hear what's going on with our past guests. This segment is also sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector is the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors. And it's a place where you can easily catalog, value, and show off your collection. It's got a huge number of pins right now. There's over 26,000 and it's updated in real time. So you'll always have the most current information on what your collection is worth. It's also got the capability to let you buy, sell, and trade pins and the rates for the site are a lot lower than other online platforms. I am on Pin Collector and you should be too. So visit pincollector.com and sign up today. Thanks to Pin Collector, we now have our very own Olympic Fever pin and you can get yours by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash oldlimfever or making a one-time donation of $20 through our PayPal link on our website. Visit oldlimfever.com and click on support the show. I just instead out a picture of our pin. Oh, cool. So if people cool. want to take yeah. a look at it, yeah, we're I'm... on Instagram at Fever. Very exciting. Very excited to have a pin. So and what's been going on with our people? Our speed skater, Erin Jackson, has been named to the board of directors of USA Roller Sports, and she will be serving in that capacity as an athlete representative. Very nice. Very good for her. Claire Egan is getting ready to start the December World Cups for biathlon, and she'll be representing USA Biathlon. And last year, this is really cool for the women's team. Last year, they only had three World Cup starting spots for women in every race. But for the whole season, they will have four slots. And that's due to their performance last year. And that's also Claire made the podium last year in one of the last races. Very excited. Nice job, Biathlon. I know. And then artistic swimmer Jacqueline Simino and her partner Claudia Holtzner have been nominated as the best female athlete team at the 2019 Pan Am Games. Is this a, a vote for them kind of situation? Yes, it is. Awesome. So we will put a link to the vote in the show notes and be sure to vote for her and Claudia. Moving on to our Tokyo 2020 news. So Jill, is there any information about the men's marathon? <laughs> you thought the saga was over. The saga is still going with the marathon. Uh, it's not going to end until after the it is a marathon. It, oh my gosh, it is a marathon of a saga. The latest is that the the Kyoto News is reporting that the men's marathon will likely be moved. Pretty much almost confirmed, although they hadn't had the date, a date not, we, yet. We've we've already moved the location, but oh, now yes. we're talking about moving the date. Exactly. It was scheduled to be on August 9, which is the last day. And of course, they end it in the stadium and then have the closing ceremonies and have that award ceremony then. And it's really exciting. But because they have relocated the event to Sapporo, they said we can't have it on that day anymore. So part of the reason is that they wouldn't be able to get to the closing ceremonies in time. And that would be like, we really want the athletes to be able to go to the closing ceremonies. And they couldn't do that if they were up in Sapporo. Because even though they're marathon runners they can't run 900 <laughs> kilometers back to tokyo that would be a great olympic marathon right yes get back to the closing ceremonies in time <laughs> but then the other thing that complicates the situation is the doping and remember how dr kathy told us how long doping testing could take that because right, they hold the hold the athletes they're Quarantine right. is not the right word, but they're held in private and you can't see right. them or get out. And they could be held for hours. So they can't have the, the marathon on the same day as the closing ceremonies for that reason as well. Because then those athletes really can't get back. Right. Whereas if right. they were already there, it's not quite that travel issue. Right. Oh. So the Sapporo mayor, uh, Katsuhiro Akamoto, said, We hope the organizing committee decides to schedule and course soon and gives attention to reducing the impact on the lives of our citizens as they make arrangements. You know what I think they should do? What? I think they should run it like you run, say, the New York or the Boston or the London Marathon and run the women's and the men's event together. That might be a good way because there's also a proposal to hold them on the same day. 
So maybe you do have to hold it together. I mean, that's what marathon runners are used to. Right. The women and the men are not used to running in single gender. Right. But the the subtleties and the, the reading between the lines of the whole process in Japan is still very amusing to me because there's that whole question of who's going to pay for it. So the organizing committee chief, Yoshihiro Mori, said the marathon's a showpiece of the games. I'd like to work together, and I don't want the expenses to be a burden on Hokkaido. Meanwhile, the Hokkaido governor, Governor Suzuki, said, yeah, it's standard for the organizing committee to shoulder the cost. Meanwhile, the organizing committee said, said with the IOC, yeah, we don't want to pay for this. Because you moved it. Yeah. So uh, nobody wants to pay for this. Well, my plan of running them together would be cheaper. It would be cheaper. It would, I mean... Because you only need one set of everything. Right. And one ending. And it would be good because if if you're going to have ticket sales, it's just one day you have to have an event. Right. Although it's one less event that you would get different ticket sales for, I suppose. But for the marathon, they don't sell a lot of tickets. Yeah, it's bundled in with another athletics. Right. But, you know, one of the things they were talking about with the marathon, why Tokyo was so upset was because for most of the race, it's not a ticketed event. Right. So the regular public and people who couldn't get tickets could see it. Go out onto the street and see it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think by holding it together or at least certainly on the same day, you know, with within a few hours of each other would reduce ticket sales. I think it would reduce costs without you losing money. See, they just need a practical... New England housewife to save them money. (laughs) I'll whip up some Johnny cakes for them, get a little cider, they'll be all set. Speaking of running, there are more details about the torch relay. The first Japanese person to carry the torch once it hits Japan will be marathon champion Mizuki Noguchi. And she won the marathon in Athens 2004. She could run the entire torch relay. She could. You know, anyone gets tired, Mizuki will be there for you. And we just saw on social media this morning before we started taping, the organizing committee released the podium bouquets that they'll be giving the gold, silver, and bronze medalists. And they will have special editions of Miratwai and Somayati attached to them, which I thought was really cool because you know how they get two different things and they always have to have like two sets of people handing you stuff. But it was a way to like not to not be so clunky. I to think. streamline. Yes. Yes. I have to say when I saw these, first of all, they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And second, I was a little disappointed that my wedding is so far in the past because I'm thinking to myself, how did I not incorporate a mascot into my bouquet? <laughs> if I had seen that on Pinterest, you know, right? 20 whatever years ago, I totally would have done that. Right. Oh, man. It's so cute. And then my once I saw them, then my immediate thought was, well, if I was part of the L.A. organizing committee, I'd be like, oh, thank goodness we got picked second to to host because Paris is going to have a lot to live up to. I mean, the Tokyo the organizing. Yes. The, of the Tokyo have been really impressive. The medals, the flowers, the the podium. Uh, they've been talking about so, using so many flowers mm-hmm. in archways and i think it's going to be beautiful and smell really good yeah. you'll have to tell me yeah because i don't i don't have smell a vision you'll have to tell me how it smells speaking of paris they have started working on the olympic village which is very exciting this is going to be a brand new construction project and hopefully it will reinvigorate a, one of the poorest areas in the country it's being built in the Saint-Denis area, which is a little bit north of Paris. I'm sure it's going to be a controversial project, as always, because it's going to force some relocations of residents and businesses and schools. But hopefully once the Olympics are over, it will be a place where there's new construction that residents can move back into and ensure that that there's some decent housing. Well, in our most recent European Games at London 2012, that mm-hmm. was a big push. They built a the, res, the the village in what I guess had been an industrial area. Mm-hmm. And it has, I think, been very successful in, in reinvigorating that part of the city. Yeah. At two, I mean, I'm sh- there were protests for that, too, because it right. really is. It's a drastic change and a drastic, I think, people have to 
shift their mindsets. And there's a lot of temporary hardship. Disruption. Yes. Yeah. But hopefully in the long run, it will be a very good thing. And finally, we've got a little bit of news from the IOC. Tibok got an honorary doctorate from the University of Gdansk in Poland. So now do we have to call him Dr. Bok? He's already a doctor. He's got a oh, PhD so in is, law. Yes. So then he's a, he is already a doctor. So yes. Although but even now, though the IOC site calls him Mr. Tomas Bach. But now he well, really that's is. his. That could be his choice. Right. But now I think we'd have to call him Dr. Botsky. Oh <laughs> well, it's a Polish doctorate. <laughs> so it, that's the letters after your name. It's not PhD. It's SKI. <laughs> I think on that note, we'll wrap it up for this week. Oh, you got a couple months for the next book club. It'll probably be in January or February. We'll be our it'll next be, meeting. Yeah, it'll be yeah, after the so, year. Don't worry, but don't forget to go pick up your copy of The Suspect. That'll wrap it up for this week. Let us know what you thought of Munich 1972 and our discussion. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're olimfever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Oh, well, I'm going to take all this stuff and turn it into a book someday.